0: Quarksman, the propaganda's wind stress beating on my attention. My countrymen, they love their fiction. We're inspired now. Display with
1: good intentions. Welcome to one of two hundred. We're back with another current events episode. Independent politics media. I am joined by our co-hosts, Rusty. Welcome. How's how's Wellington treating you? That's a yeah, it's beautiful. Fantastic. Uh, and welcome back uh, to co-hosting. Josephine, how are you doing?
2: Kia ora, I'm good. Um, I'm in Christchurch at the moment. Moved from Wellington back <laughs> to Ototahi.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. How's so... the weather down there?
2: It's actually a beautiful day, as you can see. All um, across New Stan's... Zealand. Yeah, gorgeous. Gorgeous.
1: Fantastic. Hey, thanks so much for um, joining me, both of you. We've got a hell of a week to try and uh, slog through but I really want to try and focus on some of the really big topics that I wouldn't say have gone under the radar because there have been some really good uh, reports and journalism done on these this week um, significantly from newsroom but these are these are topics that need a lot of nuance and there's a lot of information there and you need to have a lot of interrogation of them. And they've just been pushed right into the background by the shit show, um, of political theater that's been going on this week. Um, that I put so like completely at the door of both major parties and the gallery. Uh, and I, I, I mostly want to try and avoid, um, except to laugh raucously. Um, at how amateur they all are. But what we've got today, um, we want to talk about one of the first topics that kicked off this week um, and then just swiftly disappeared, uh, which is the MDRs um, and the bipartisan housing accord uh, between Labour and National that went out the fucking window. Uh, We want to talk about managed retreat um, and what's been happening uh, post-flooding and Cyclone Gabriel, um, particularly in auckland i think there's a lot of ramifications of that there are a lot of things that people just aren't talking about uh with very short-term focused at the moment in political media on this stuff uh and it's just not it's just not cutting it um as far as climate is concerned we need midterm at the very least because this stuff is rapidly increasing the third thing we want to try and talk about is uh the tertiary cuts we talked about it a little bit last week uh, as that was lining up um and some of the uh, tertiary union responses to that uh, with Mark Rickaby. But it's just got far more on the hinge this week with Christopher Hepkins standing up in front of the crowd and mouthing off. Um, again, not really being covered, uh, except we had Stephen Joyce come out to say that Hepkins was being too neoliberal this morning, uh, which is fucking insane. Um, and then we'll try and touch a little bit on that perception politics and, and give us a, a little bit of media analysis. On, what the fuck is going on in political communication at the moment? Because I don't know. Let's let's do it. Uh, so, Rusty, uh, you are. I <laughs> want to hand it to on on the housing stuff. Uh, basically, uh, for those who are unaware, uh, a couple of years back, Labor and National uh, crossed the aisle uh, to each other and, and had these big talks. Uh, to try and get some bipartisan direction on fixing the housing crisis in New Zealand, which is like a a really big problem here. Uh, As anyone who has lived here or or looked into this uh, knows, uh, really hashed uh, something out which suited both parties at the time. A big deal was made of it. You know, this is like looking at the future of the country. Um, By doing this... uh, And specifically by Labour watering down a lot of their stuff um, and getting National on board, the idea was that it made it harder for National to repeal later on, um, you know, a a shared direction um, on the very basics, even if some of the uh, policy would be different if either was in power. So what's happened there, Rusty? What what happened this week?
0: So... Um, yeah, I'm not just going to spend 45 minutes saying I told you so, but I, I, I did call this one a fair ways out. Um, but essentially what's happened is Christopher Luxon was in a town meeting in, uh, on Auckland's North Shore, um, and got bailed up by, well, in amongst getting bailed up by locals screaming about, um the Maori takeover of New Zealand um and co-governance and a bunch of unhinged racist conspiracy theories um he got bailed up by one of the questioners and asking about uh urban intensification apartments going up um and either on the fly made up a change to you know um one of nationals kind of key policy commitments um on housing uh or pre-announced something that they were going to do anyway um which is revisiting um the bipartisan commitment to medium uh, density residential standards um which is effectively the three stories uh, up to three units um, on all residential land in the country so opening up a, a whole lot more um existing land to to build denser more sustainable um houses for people um so then as it transpires basically what they've said is look we're gonna get rid of get rid of that um we really want to focus on enabling greenfields developments so you know um if you live in auckland and like your commute and wish it was longer um congratulations you know um you can start commuting from the outskirts to Hamilton. What a selling um, point. Oh no, I know. I can't, you know, look, everyone just wants their bloody quarter acre block, right? And if you've got to go to Matter Matter to get it, um that's 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 the way it's gonna be. Um so yeah, greater focus on extensive development, um, which maybe touch on some of the problems with that, especially once we dovetail that into the managed withdrawal conversation. Um and uh still supporting um development along uh transport corridors um so it's not entirely all bad news but I think it it's it's a walk back and I think this has been my frustration about the framing of this and kind of labor labor's tactics is the notion that you can get the national party to agree to progressive policies and stick to them which just isn't how our political dynamics have ever worked (laughs) basically if you make a progressive change you bet it in and people like it because turns out making people's lives better over the medium long term is very politically popular um it becomes very hard for a future right-wing government to repeal it um and that to me has always been the better tactic is to explain to people why you're better um <laughs> get get them to vote for you enough times that you can let these things bet in. and I think the, the MDRS is a, a classic example of that it hasn't had time to do its work yet you know housing moves and big ships turn slowly um but once you've you know you are beginning to see it in Auckland and, and Wellington but once you've got reasonably priced, ideally a lot of public uh, housing coming onto, you know, not the market, just the market, but but coming into supply, and people are able to get affordable houses or, or rents that aren't completely crippling, um, that kind of ignores the the distributional outcomes here, right? It's and I think this is this is where some of the the discourse gets can be quite shallow that it's just like oh yeah no more housing more housing good um why would anyone ever be opposed to oh you know a stupid enemies um just don't want anything built near them and it's like okay yes that's all true but I think what the the supply only angle on this ignores and this is kind of hopefully where the debate in New Zealand begins to shift to is it's about who benefits from you know we're going to do all this Allow all this intensification. Who who benefits from that? Is it just landowners, who are you know pre-existing landowners and developers who are able to um, profit from that, or are we going to do it in a way that you know society as a whole or a city as a whole can benefit from um, the the value that's that's being created there through intensification? And so I think the part of the reason you've seen national defect is that the people who are bearing the costs of intensification are incredibly loud about it um this is sort of my my uncle the- uncle theory of what national are going to do next the thing when <laughs> i chat to my auckland family about that they are the most pissed off about is um you know two and three story apartments going up in their neighborhood and they think it looks terrible and Um, I won't repeat some of what gets said about it, but um, there is in that sort of, you know, swing voting mortgage ballot of Auckland, a kind of um, unhappiness, I think, about some of the consequences here. And it's in, if National wants to peel off a few of those votes and pull them back to them, I think, you know, basically pushing all of the development either out to rural areas where no one lives or to areas of the city that are, you know, um, less well off and more likely to be Labour voting, that's um, it's a good plan. And it sucks that it's a good plan, but um, I can, yeah, I totally understand why they've done it.
1: Yeah, it's it really does seem like another one of those things. And we talked about it, I think, last week or the week before, uh, where Labour and National they know it's tight and they're looking for those one and two percent wedges um with like little technocratic changes um this one's a little bit bigger uh but they're still looking for those those margins um this is all electoral calculus it it helps as well that we've got the capital class like roaring into the air right um you know this this is policy not only from the bowls club this is coming right from the top
2: I just wanted to you know, add my thoughts to the discussion. Um, this is a topic that's really sort of animated me in the recent um, days. And um, my take on this issue is, first of all, you know, the sort of bipartisan agreement between two neoliberal parties. It, I mean, the, in the first instance, it, it showed how non-radical, non-transformative um, this policy is. Um, but it was still sort of like, I guess, Um, some sort of an improvement. Maybe I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that um, a market-based solution is what we need for market-created crises. So, um, you know, the bipartisan agreement uh, effectively was a market solution for a market-created crisis when we should be looking elsewhere. And by retreating from it, what National has effectively done is reduce the discussion to two forms of market based solutions on the one hand we have the you know the nimby argument which is also you know sort of like rooted in market market based solutions uh, it's a private um, sort of um, uh, it's still a commodification of land and the interests of land owners and then We've got the Yimby argument, which is also a market-based solution, where we're seeing private property developers trying to increase their profits and so forth. And we have, and by reducing the discussion to two options, which are rooted in market-based um, sort of solutions for housing, we are completely missing the point. <laughs> And we're not even reaching a discussion that would be constructive in addressing the problems that we are facing right now, which is an unaffordability crisis, a deregulated uh, rental market. There is no guarantee that increasing the supply is going to decrease rent when rent is being determined in such a random way. Like I was living in, in Wellington in a soap. Box. It was smaller area than a, you know a standard tiny house, and we were being um, charged five hundred dollars, and we were told to to feel lucky about it. There's no regulation in this rental market, and as long as there's no regulation in the rental market, simply having more private landlords is not, not necessarily going to decrease rents. Uh, in fact, you know it's it's going in a progressive way where each year the rents are being put up. There's no readjustment according to, you know, um, cost of living, for example, amid cost of living over 70% of landlords uh, were planning to increase their rent. So um, this idea that more private landlords is is the solution to housing, uh, this housing crisis needs to be questioned. And, um, you know, uh, what I would put forward is to go beyond this YIMBY versus NIMBY argument and think about a massive state housing scheme where, um, you know, we are increasing supply, but not from the market, collectively owned housing supply should increase so we have enough housing to address the crises that are going on right now we we need housing to house the single mother who's in emergency housing and continuously shifting and cannot provide her children a settled life that she should be in the focus of our policy making not some uh, profits of of uh, private property developers or nimby's
0: and i think this is this is kind of what i'd hoped would happen with the sort of um, yeah accord or agreement with national on kind of the basics of yes okay it's now legal to build any kind of housing most places like that's sort of the the basic regardless of whether you you know what model you're using to to deliver that whether it's public private kind of community housing you got to start with it's legal to build housing and I think this is um, certainly, in the debates in in Wellington, Kainga Order were one of the kind of strongest supporters of "Hey, Wellington Council, make it legal for us to build state houses at more places." Um, but kind of what I'd kind of what I'd hoped, and what I think, you know, if if you're on the um, the left, you need to be pushing for regardless. But with that agreement out of the way, that the debate could actually move on to sort of the the actually getting houses built for people to live in part of the story and i think it's exactly like you say josephine that if you just leave it to the market the market's going to pursue what's most profitable that's kind of how they work and that's not necessarily um kind of you know, medium density, modestly sized, livable, high quality housing for families. No, in, a lot of a- cases, in a lot of cases, it's much more profitable to throw up, you know, three or four McMansions um, somewhere on the outskirts of our, our bigger cities, which is why we've seen so much of that kind of development. Um, yeah.
2: And, and I don't so know if think- you've noticed, um, you know, some of these, um, you know, developers, like I'm going to name them, <laughs> you know, Wilson's, uh Oh, yeah, Williams, these people and even Fletchers, the kind of uh, housing they're developing there. I mean, when profit is the, you know, is the driving force, um, you're necessarily going to create housing that is, you know, barely livable. Um, The walls are thin. Um, The kind of materials they use are, you know, the cheapest possible within the given standard. And, you know, I, I was trying to buy my first house, and I went and saw a few of these places. Um, it's really barely livable. Um, you're talking about $750,000 for a 75-square-meter place, which is, like, so overpriced. And even despite the current high, you know, interest rate, the prices really haven't budged that much. So... And also the argument that just intensification is a solution, like if it's not, if the supply reduces uh, the cost, uh, you know, the price of housing, then and it's not viable, then they're going to stop doing it anyway. So, you know, their interests are profits not to house the people of New Zealand. So, yeah, we need to be cognizant of that.
0: And I think the The point about sort of rising interest rates and what that's doing to the private developer sector is a a good one, because, you know, we are beginning to see these stories coming out about um, some of these companies who have over leveraged, try to do too much, because again, um, you know, I don't expect them to do anything other than try to make a profit. That's what they're designed for. And it's kind of, you know, whether it's policymakers or the public in general, kind of relying on purely on that sector it's it's you know um, it's the frog and the scorpion I'm going to do what's in my nature but I think what the if I'm trying to be hopeful and try to um, you know see a, a way where you could you know see labor improving on this um, is we are going to see some of these um, developers tipping over and I think there, there is a window of opportunity there to effectively bail them out, take them over and begin using that develop, you know, the the kind of physical capability that um is in private hands at the I'm moment. I'm sorry, Rusty,
1: rest- but labor and bailing people out, but then taking a controlling share is not an iconic duo. No. they no. Their 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 modus operandi has been we're gonna give you a handout and we're gonna there's gonna be nothing on the table for that. We're gonna just do this for free. Have fun.
0: And this is what really, I I think you're probably right, Um, but I I don't know, I'm trying to be optimistic here. I think um, Megan Woods, the current housing minister, does have a very kind of central government should be in control of the housing program sort of attitude, um, which I think has upsides and downsides, um, because I think an over-reliance just on kind order is part of the problem when... Um, you know, local council housing, um, especially in um, towns where it's been kept and not um, privatized, um, does provide a really kind of crucial source of housing. Similarly, um, you know, a lot of community housing providers uh, and increasingly Iwi-led um, developments, you know, are sort of part of this broader, more diverse ecosystem than just, you um, Fletcher's plopping out cookie cutter houses all the way from you know the Brindouans to the Bombays, or Kayanga Order sort of doing, you know, the bare minimum that's well, it's it's still less than the bare minimum. Um, but yeah, a kind of a more diverse ecosystem of ownership models would really help there. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm kind of quietly hopeful that we might see. As some of the heat comes out of the private market, a kind of classic Keynesian counter cyclical uh, approach, which even a neoliberal Labour Party can get behind, of all right, keep those skills in New Zealand. You know, that, that trades training has been one of the areas they've actually not done terribly. Um, keep those skills out there, but density, high quality public housing. I live in hope.
2: I think we should just confiscate uh, the housing <laughs> owned by <laughs> people their own over, like maybe to be a bit moderate, we can, you know, you can, can have up to three homes after that, the state is co- confiscating your homes. Um, a radical change <laughs> in uh, our understanding of housing. I think we should decommodify de- housing. I mean, so, I mean, these are the, the dreams of a socialist uh, that I'm just uh, <laughs> just uh, no, this is, this is, the... you know
0: we've got the full range of of reasonable political opinion here through from like uh, a progressive takeover by the state um, through through harnessing um, you know capability all the way through to you know the, <laughs> you know slightly more radical but I still think entirely
1: reasonable um, just confiscate it all now. <laughs> I think this is, one of, this is one of the really frustrating things about the housing conversation in this country um, is that we do not have an outlier um, Overton window uh, position, which is in the public sphere and absolutely should be. Most other OECD countries do. Like, I, I think even a lot of um
2: If you look at market... Singapore, for example, Singapore, yeah. over 80% of the housing stock is owned by the state. So Singapore
0: Singapore's this the country that,
1: you know, our right-wingers are in love with.
2: Yeah, exactly. So we could use that example. To I, don't, of... I don't want
1: to use Singapore <laughs> as an example of anything.
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> the housing situation in Singapore is pretty good. And I think there's it, it something that we can learn yeah, from So it. there's
1: a model there, yeah. And
0: I, um, and yeah. I, think, I think the I, one of my pet peeves is, is with this term decommodification, because I think in terms of marketing, unless you're kind of properly – versed in in economic and, and um, Marxist theory, it might not necessarily resonate as much as just saying, we should have, you know, pointing at the actual models of places that have reasonable, you know, housing costs for, for people, places like Singapore or Vienna. And the way they've done it is that they treat housing much more like we treat education or health. Mm-hmm. And that like, you know, yes, if you're you know, um able to, yes, yeah, sure, you can go into the the private market if you've got particular needs or particular interests, but the kind of fundamental security is provided by a publicly, you know, well resourced, publicly provisioned um system. And I think that's yeah. that's the model and that's the goal. And I think that's what we need to be pushing for and and, uh-huh. and
1: increasing. I think we've lost sight of the I, fact that shelter is a human right. Like I, I really do. I think. Exactly. That, and so I disagree
2: anymore. with you there, Rusty. I think that <laughs> the population of New Zealand is well primed for class consciousness. And uh, oftentimes we need <laughs> these sorts of ideas like decommodification to make sense of, for example, the systems of even colonization. What the hell happened? Why is it that Maori are disproportionately homeless? It's related to the commodification of housing which happened under colonization. So if we're talking about like decolonial politics, if you're talking about all these sorts of things, I think the, the population is, is ready and it's waiting for people, more and more people to talk about Radical ideas,
1: yeah. I, we don't, don't want to be
2: Vienna or or Singapore. Like, what the hell is you know, like a country like Austria? It's um its role in the world is just to prop up and support the imperialist system. So, um, I don't think, yeah, we should look there. I mean, of course, if it's a strategy to get the normies on board, then yeah. But <laughs> I think um, that's
0: that, that's all into <laughs> is is how to have that. Co- conversation with a broader audience i think Mm. again a model of we should have more communities providing their own housing for themselves and i think you know the kind of modern papakai movement is a great example of that pointing to these kinds of models of communities housing themselves and being given the resources and power to do that i think is a, a better way of marketing the idea than talking yeah. sort of about um, you know the, the again the deconmodification or sort of land tenure reform and the, you know the 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 kind of more centrist angle on this is as well I think is just as um, poorly phrased. It's like no one wants to talk about land taxes, man. Like talk about what's real to people.
1: Well, this is the thing, right? Like, and this conversation isn't being allowed to be had, and it comes back again to my my constant point: the public. And, and the electorate are far more progressive than what our, our um, political uh, kind of institutions, our MPs, and our political media are allowing for. You we've we've outlined a clearer set of steps um, around the around the housing discussion just now. You know, in ten minutes, like here's here's the outlier for it. Here, where we are, and we're we're actually really far to the right because of this neoliberal consensus. Um, these are all the steps that don't currently exist in the current conversation. That's actually pretty bad. Um, it's a pretty bad spot to be in. And we, you know, we know these things. like most people who are in this discussion, uh, you know, at at large, they know about these different uh states of the housing argument uh internationally. They can point at these things, but we're, we're just not having that conversation. Instead, we're talking about, oh, National backed out of this and they're going for greenfields. You know, they, we're talking about, like, just these incredibly narrow um, market-based concepts of how we deal with housing as the standard uh, as opposed to, okay, but how about we make sure people have a roof over their heads, which which should be the baseline for any of these conversations. We've not nothing else should be the starting point. Like, why, why are we doing this to ourselves? We're going to end up in a bad spot.
2: Yeah, and it kind of also uh, touches upon certain other areas. For example, the banking sector, like ANZ and all these private banks, they basically own the housing stock in New Zealand. They're making profits out of you know extracting mortgages uh, and stuff like that. Maybe we need to think about, uh, how we can reform Kiwi Bank, for example, make it, um, you know, a more social democratic bank. Currently, it's operating like all of these other banks uh, like ANZ. So there's virtually no difference in the way these are operating. So if we reform, ki- um, you know, Kiwi Bank and the, and the government becomes the main mortgage provider uh, for the people, for, for for people who own their own, you know, single family home and provides much more attractive rates of mortgage for example i mean we could transfer the ownership of the housing of new zealand from the private sector into the hands into a collective ownership model i mean through these sorts of um, uh, reforms in our banking sector as well so um, there's so many you know associated allied sort of sectors With with housing and you know reforming these can have a huge impact on the overall well-being of New Zealand society. This is
1: what you get to talk about when your baseline is different, right? When you're when you're Mm -hmm. saying okay, what we need to do is put people in houses. You start to look at the the wider picture because you have to because you have to find other ways to do it, right? Other than the market and just like popping houses up uh, wherever you can. Okay,
0: I was going to say this is the thing: housing is everything, and everything is housing. but like all of these things are plugged together in in an overall system. And i think you know we talked about banking i think insurance is is the other sort of part of the the Mm -hmm. fire economy that's really tied into this and let's (laughs) segue but before i do that i did just want to talk about why i think we don't see this and it's the fundamental success of the neoliberal project it's number one anchor that keeps the you know electoral majority in bought into it is property owning democracy. It's the, the dream of home ownership yes. and the disciplining effect of having a mortgage to pay every yeah. month that you don't necessarily want to talk about radical solutions because the the tiny amount of of capital that you've been allowed to um build up to keep you bought in um has a, a natural kind of conservativizing tendency. Yes. Um, but I think National has fucked up here more than Labour has. Labour are keeping just the bare majority on the right side of that line. If you pursue the path that National, especially Act, want, I think longer term, that's where there is more possibilities for radical action because you're going to have a majority of renters going, fuck this, fuck my landlord, the rent is too goddamn high, um, and wanting to, to see some alternatives. Anyway, back to that segue, talking about insurance.
1: Yeah, talking about insurance. So this is another one of those things that plugs in, right? Um, we're talking about the banks uh, being part of this uh, discussion. Um, but just this week, we started to get a little bit new- more news come out uh, regarding, I-, I guess, managed retreat is a broad term we're-, we're talking about here Um going into the, the longer term. Uh, but post the floods and... The cyclone, uh, a, a range of houses that are just written off. Uh, and Hepkins, when this was initially happening, he dropped the term managed retreat pretty early on. I think Robertson was as well. And then it kind of shifted uh, into the background uh, as they realized maybe the implications um, of having that on the policy table. Uh, and we haven't heard it uh, as much in the last month or so but this is basically the idea that as climate crises accelerate uh, as we get more extreme weather um, as you know uh, sea levels rise uh, you know in the a little bit further out some places are going to become uninhabitable and what do you do with the people that are living there Uh, and the leading edge of this at at the moment, because again, we're tied into a market system on this is insurance companies saying, we're not going to, we're not going to give this to you for cheap. If we're going to insure you at all. Um, And we're starting to see, and like, this, this has been a really quick turnaround Uh, within a couple of months um, of those floods, the premiums are going through the roof. Uh, We had uh, a a really good um, piece of writing from Jonathan Milne, uh, in newsroom. Um, this is one of the only things I've seen that's gone into some detail on this. Uh, the headline is projected 400 flooded Auckland households may not be allowed to return. I, that's that. that like, what, what do we do with that as a society um, in a situation when we're already struggling with providing housing? We're already trying to figure out how we rebuild our capacity for this while insurance companies are saying we're not we're not touching this uh and or um we're changing your premiums because a slip's going to come down on your house what is the government going to be able to do about this and how is it going to have this conversation without moving to a policy of higher state ownership um, and like direct buyouts.
2: Yeah, uh, again, it goes back to the question of, you know, like you said, ownership. And what the hell do these private insurance companies stand for? They extract the money of people and the whole point is not to pay them back, right? How can we find an excuse not to pay people back? We will take their money, you know, very regularly every single year. Uh, They have to pay thousands of dollars to us. But if they come to a point where they need our support, we're going to do everything to try and stop, you know, having to pay them out. And this is the principle under which private insurance companies are founded. This is a kind of a parasitic um, economic model, which which sort of like, um, what do you say, exemplifies the nature of, of, you know, um, service sector within neoliberal capitalism. And eventually what's going to happen is, you know, we are going, you know, the public uh, taxpayer is going to have to bear the, the cost of it. So why not we create a system where, you know, a property is is collectively owned. In that case, any in any case, uh, we are going to bear the costs and like the poorest are going to be affected the most. And the, you know, the highest insured and the most, you know, the richest, um, will have means to, you know, uh, to keep themselves safe. Um, but again, the poor and the working class will be disproportionately affected.
0: And I, I think that's exactly right is a lot of what's talked about in this managed withdrawal conversation, at least for now is bailouts of homeowners. Um, and I think it's very easy when those homeowners, um, you know, millionaire mansions perched on the cliffs of, you know, um, uh, you know, Oraki or, or, or um, you know, Mount Victoria and Wellington, wherever, where it's people who don't need the state's help, people who would be fine on their own, um, being able to kind of take advantage of the the political system to get a private bailout um, it's very easy to look at that and go, no, from a left wing or right wing perspective, and go, no, fuck that, we're not doing that. This managed withdrawal is just free money for homeowners. Um, sorry, managed retreat is 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 just free money. But it's there are different ways of going about this, and I, I think what we've seen so far with the kind of reactive stuff to Cyclone Gabriel is just going down this path of someone has lost their home, we're red sticker, you know, like we did with um, the Christchurch red zone. Um, we'll bail out the homeowners, we'll protect the insurance companies um, at the state's expense. Which is, if you're just trying to protect the status quo, if you're just trying to, you know, say, oh, look, this is an un- unfortunate disaster that's happened once, um, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll look after people. Yeah. Okay. But like, we can't, we can afford to do that as a society when it's, you know, a couple of thousand homes after the Christchurch earthquakes, a couple of hundred homes in Auckland. What do we do when it's the entirety of South Dunedin um, is subject to storm inundation or every town on the Coromandel peninsula is uninhabitable because of, you know, we live in the tropics now, whether we like it or not. Um, the 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 solutions you're gonna come up with in those situations have to be more radical because it's just not possible to continue doing it on the model we have. And I think the the question we need to be asking and the the fight we need to be prepped for is that it's you know radical solutions don't just have to be radical in a good way. And I th- I think you could see a kind of radical libertarian um you know disaster capitalism type um Approach coming from the right. David Seymour and seem think... or an
1: ACT were were lobbying hard for this, and in, in the Hawks, yeah. they like really yeah. crazy shit, like yeah. um, set up.
0: Was shit. it? Uh, yeah, um, special, special economic, economic zones. zones, and I think really this insane. Is, this is the thing, right? Is you know, as people further on the left, it, you can see these things coming down the path a bit more. You know, for all their many sins, the Green Party have been out ahead of this shit for twenty years, and National and Labor are just catching up. um that it does create these opportunities for 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 more radical changes. But at the moment, it's still not bad enough. It's still just, what do we need to do to preserve the status quo is Labour and National's approach to it.
1: Yeah, and it's, you know, you said it, it doesn't just have to be radical um, from the left, right? Um, and at the same time, it doesn't also have to be reactionary. There's a lot of stuff we could be doing which isn't just okay it's happened and now we uh now we buy it out um and that stuff doesn't have to be from the left either like there's a lot of proactive uh things floating around on the right um in terms of i, I think one of the bigger examples of it has been uh the act party and summon national uh, trying to shift the conversation to, uh, like, physical mitigations rather than uh, climate controls. Um, and it just becomes very messy and very confused very fast if you don't have a clear, progressive vision for how we're dealing with this as a society, for how we're making it, a like, a just response. And it just... It feels... It seems so easy to just say, okay, well, we know that this is the reality um, of what's coming in the next five to 10 years. Let's be ready for it. Um, and let's try and not only mitigate uh, the damage that's going to be done, but be ready for the damage that's going to be done regardless of anything that we do. Because I, I think we're we're about to go into like... And th- unknown weather pattern uh in the second half of this year for New Zealand like it's it's not something we've experienced before and you're like okay so what what have you got on the ground we, we can't just be reacting to this because we don't know what's going to happen um we have to have things available that can react in any number of ways and we have to have Baseline values around what kind of outcomes we want for our people that are guiding those because otherwise, you you the people with the power and the money are just able to take advantage of that uh and the more of a crisis it becomes and we've talked about this a lot in regards to um you know far-right populism and, and things like that the more of a crisis it becomes the more able uh bad electoral actors are able to take advantage of that you know if if a whole bunch of people get flooded out um and, oh, no, like, this literally happened. I was about to make something up, but this literally happened in the Hawke's Bay. Um, you had the floods. Uh, you had, like, this crime narrative happening. And Axe started talking about being able to arm people, you know? And, and there was, like, this huge social media campaign about um, having to, like, ride around with guns. I'm pretty sure someone got shot, you know? Like, without something already in place to push back on that um so that people know that they're supported so that they know that there's someone to turn to and that, look there's going to have to be the state and the current and the current framework that we've got because the the market isn't ready for that um you know you, you cannot have a i don't think there's a current profit motive for uh effective uh support uh i can't i couldn't t- possibly tell you why that is um yeah I, I just think we're we're a little bit behind a lot behind um on, on the conversation around this and especially an electoral level and and just to cycle back around once again people know this the electorate knows this they, they know that they want to be supported they know that they want um to have something to fall back on, they know that that's good for their communities and their families and and the people that they love, and no one at the top is having that conversation, and it's fucked.
0: Yeah, and I, and we're getting, it, I think, maybe a bit away from the, the kind of um, managed retreat thing here, but I, I do think this what we saw with the floods and cycling gabriel is that it's not always going to be central state actors coming to the rescue of like everything needs to be centrally controlled and, and organized in situations like that what you really need to be doing is is yes having you know emergency management kind of supported and resourced is like a kind of core state function but an approach that's about building resilient communities and i think because it was the East Coast, a, a huge part of that response um, was local Iwi um, as kind of part of the essential, you know, marae as essential infrastructure, basically, um, to, to kind of have that community resilience that's able to respond on the ground, has the resources it needs, is kind of accorded the the funding and respect it deserves. Um but if and this is the thing yeah if you don't have that if you don't have a um a sense that you know your local community and the the country as a whole have your back people are going to turn to the um fuck you i got mine guns type logic um and i to a certain extent you can't blame people in those situations whether that's um you know committing property crime or um, getting very, very violently defensive of their property rights. And it's like, that's the bad timeline that we get if you don't prepare for it.
2: Yeah, and um, it's really the displacement of uh, people through climate sort of events is, is really already happening globally. Um, there's a recent study that said um, 1.7 million people have been displaced um, or been through some form of managed retreat programs globally, um, rec- in recent years. So it is already a reality, and we we should see more discussions about this from all political parties. And I don't think we're hearing enough about their solutions to this issue yet.
1: And it, it, as it always comes back to, like, it's about undercutting capacity and under resourcing services um at a very basic level uh in this case housing insurance um you know climate capacity uh infrastructure in particular is is a really big one uh stormwater systems was was one of the really big issues um during the floods and we're we're seeing this from basically any, any neoliberal um third way government that you pick in the world at the moment and and labor is definitely not an exception to this just this week as well um to move on to the next topic uh we're seeing this in the academic sector and tertiary uh this year has been (laughs) there's been so many public service issues um you know you've had the primary and secondary unions out um striking uh, because education is being underfunded, you know, had health um, unions striking because health being underfunded, uh, emergency services underfunded, all these things that we really need right now. Uh, but, and, and especially we need to be strong to provide the capacity for the future who just can't make ends meet as industries having to fight tooth and nail to get anything at all. Uh, and being treated as a balance sheet by a Labour government. And it's it's popped up again this week with these enormous uh, cuts in tertiary institutions. Um, Justine, maybe you have a bit more context for what's happening on the ground in, uh, with some of this. Yeah.
2: Um- I definitely have position <laughs> on this issue. I'm not. Yeah. Um, so you've I think you've set the context quite well there. I mean, uh, the whole narrative is that the tertiary education sector in New Zealand is in crisis Um there's cuts happening at major universities. Um, it has been going on for a while. Auckland Uni has been having these issues uh, since last year. We're hearing about 260 cuts in Vic, where I used to work until recently. Um, um, kind of glad I you know, left the ship. Um, before it got really bad i mean um currently at uc uc is the only one that's kind of as an exception um with higher enrollment rates and stuff like that we will talk about that soon but um but dunedin is another highly you know crisis prone university it's been going on for i think over a decade now Um, periodic cuts happening to staff and uh, currently they're saying there's a 60 million dollar deficit at uh, Otago University and so the cuts are coming and um, you know the students over there uh, rightly uh, protested the prime minister um, when he was visiting yesterday I think Um, and and the idea is that u- universities are autonomous, and so the government can't, um, you know, intervene. Whereas, you know, the government has been intervening in private sector directly. Um, in the, you know, if you look at the labor government's policy, uh, we can see things like wage subsidy scheme, where the government was pumping money into completely private institutions. Um, if you look at the university funding structure, even. We got nothing to do with this which is really irresponsible and we should also look at why these universities are in crisis since when are they in crisis I would argue that the neoliberalization of the universities you know starting from the 80s but becoming more um, prominent in the 90s and the late 90s and that um, has had an impact on you know the crises within the universities and like who is determining these cuts within those universities and who is getting the funding of these universities? So if 45% is being funded by the government and the rest is coming from student fees and all that, we still have a, we still have a right to question what is going on in these universities. If you look at it, these, all of the major universities are operating like private businesses. They're giving huge contracts to Private consultancies like PwC, EY, Deloitte. So, the money of the universities are, are also being extracted by private consultancies. So, can't we cut in these areas? Can't we rethink? the way the universities are run. And, um, you know, one of the uh, justifications provided by Chris Hipkins today is that, you know, one of the reasons our universities are autonomous and we get, you know, such free thought in New Zealand uh, compared to other countries, first of all, you know, this New Zealand exceptionalism is wrong. Like the other universities across the world also have academic freedom in different models of running universities uh, also work. And I would argue that, you know, running universities as private institutions or private corporations decreases the autonomy of universities and it decreases the ability of universities to be, you know, the conscience of society uh, because it. Reduces it to funding, and funding is available from the private sector only in certain areas where they can make profits. So more creative, more critical departments are becoming defunded and becoming cut. So this idea that running universities like autonomous businesses is improving, um, you know, the autonomy and free speech is actually wrong. It it narrows it down to very uh, small areas where it's profitable to have courses. So yeah we need to sort of critically analyze all this narrative that is coming from chris hipkins and i'm really glad that the students there spoke up against him
1: it's it's been one of the most cynical things i've seen from a politician um in the last little while and you know that's that's saying something um aaron hawkins on twitter um at a underscore g underscore hawkins um had a little thread about it where he was uh, putting down some quotes from Hopkins uh, who said it's important for universities to have the autonomy to undertake significant staffing cuts. That's an insane thing to say. I, I don't think that I've seen that kind of base uh, level of misappropriation of, of a term to try and I don't even know who's really trying to appeal to um but as you said Josephine like them trying to tack on the freedom of speech um
2: yeah
1: a- as being the outcome that is being driven uh like you can make cuts therefore you have freedom of speech excuse me <laughs> like he- he's trying to bundle all the stuff that he it says to me he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about for one thing and as a as a Uh, previous minister of education that's insane uh but it also speaks to the deep deep neoliberalism that's still at the heart of the labor party this was i I said on twitter that this is Rogernomics. this is like straight this is something roger douglas would say um but we're we're quite far away from that point in time where it was so uh openly radical um i i've read i've I've really struggled with the inability of again um, our our gallery um, and our media to interrogate this because I think it's probably one of the leading edges of what Labor stands for um, and what they are as a party. Um, I really hope that no, and no, I, I I don't hope because this is a pretty clear indicator of what Labor's going to try and do this campaign. Um, I'm going to be even more surprised than I would have been a week ago if Labour come to the campaign table with some proper progressive policy. Because if you're trying to hide the destruction of civic society uh behind market model rhetoric that you're tying to a free speech argument, you're done. Like <laughs> I don't I don't know how I I don't know what your worldview is at that point, other than why aren't you an act?
2: And I'm also like just uh, thinking about the fact that this government, um, you know, along with the green environment minister, gave 140 million to New Zealand Steel, which is owned by, if you look at the shareholders, JP Morgan, <laughs> as the City Group, um, Goldman Sachs. It's all, all extractivist. It's all extractivist. So the government is happy to give this this much money to a a private institution, which makes more than double that amount in profits every year. And they're not willing to reinvest it into sustainable technology. They want government handouts for it. And and he's saying that I can't intervene in this. I mean, we really need to look at the model uh, under which universities are being run in New Zealand at the moment. And it really needs, uh, you know, a, a com- complete restructuring. And and also, I'm also a bit. I'm going to present a critique of the tertiary education union. I think it was soft on labor until this point. Um, If you think about the promises made by the Labour government when it came to power in 2017, it included three years fees-free, it included a post-grad student student allowance, and one after the other, the government just broke these promises to the the, uh, tertiary sector. And they were not checked on these. There wasn't much backlash. And all of these things are tied into each other. The government is not committed to the tertiary sector. And right now it's being reflected and we should be holding them to account each step and like most of New Zealand isn't even aware that they broke their major promises they came to like Ardern came to my university and promised this in front of all the students and she has no qualms in you know breaking her promises to students to workers to poor people um, but she will always follow through her promises to the to yeah. the rich and the wealthy. Like she campaigned on uh, capital gains tax, for example, and uh, she didn't keep that word. But she kept her word not to not to even consider it for the future. So this yeah. is the whole um, you know orientation of the Labour Party, and it has been a an ongoing theme and. It's just this is just another issue in the stream of issues of breaking promises and disappointing uh, people within the tertiary education sector.
1: Where are our public institution bailouts? Like this stuff mm. builds new stuff, new like new capacity. Like instead, we're, we we they literally just give money away for free to big yeah. corporates and to um, extract finance capital uh, for nothing. Like they they don't take yeah. shares. They they don't have an agreement. It's not a loan. Uh, just like, here, have this because um, please be nice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Let us have a photo op. And I think this is, you know, I think one, the, the things that Labour isn't doing annoy me and the things that Labour has done, I don't think are great either. Um, the reform of the um the, uh, the polytechnic sector, um, I think that's probably the model. Like if there were, if, if the, the Labor Party with its current I, kind of ideological priors was was doing university reform, I think you would see something that looks a lot like that, which is not really changing the delivery model on the, the ground and still having this kind of volumetric bums on seats approach to um, uh, education, but centralizing control, taking it out of local communities, limiting the autonomy that um, the institutions have, um, and and putting it all under one umbrella which like they're done the right way there are some advantages too but i think you do run into you would run into academic freedom problems if at a, an institutional level everything freed up to the government at the day and it's like okay yeah with labor and power that might be fine but how is that going to look when um you know the the management of any given university are able to be fired by a minister of education david seymour um and so i think the
2: that I was that is so is,
0: cursed rusty that was such a cursed he, thing he, to say he doesn't want education no. um but not, not sure what he'll end up being minister of um the kind of hypocrisy of 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 what hipkins um you know framing it in these these academic freedom terms it's like no no, no you know university autonomy is a, a crucial value and we should have universities that are independent from central government control um but to yeah to put that in terms of like the freedom you have is the freedom to cut it's 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 something and it's like the the other thing is that this was the most predictable thing like the millennial mini baby boom is has tapered off we've known for 25 years that there was going to be a a downturn in the number of students entering the sector just because of sheer demographics (laughs) um but because of the kind of competitive model we have between these institutions they've all thought that it wasn't going to happen to them that there was some magical solution out there and rather than sort of preparing for that and um you know coordinating a, a across the institutions to ensure we kind of retain the the skills and the the research and the you know the people um around those institutions they've kicked the can out and now it's it's now it's government government through crisis. Um, Sorry, we can
1: only work. And, for the, the, current damage that, there,
0: and the damage that, and the damage that's going to do to some of these institutions. Like, why would anyone go to Vic at this point? You know, um, you you have to pay Wellington rent, and they've fired all of the teachers, and it's doing bodily damage to the the um, quality and respectability of our higher education great
1: so lo- lots of stuff um, on that cheerful note yeah like so <laughs> and these are all things which I just don't th- feel have have had proper conversations this week um, like anywhere really uh, most of the responses to this have been on social media on Twitter um, if you're if you're looking for any nuance or interrogation of of these issues, Instead of being kind of caught up, oh, Josephine,
2: you got got... A- uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, like, again, uh, I just want to, you know, sort of, like, connect it back to that decommodification argument <laughs> earlier. We need to decommodify higher education in New Zealand as well. Like, the idea of, uh, you know, ed- getting a loan after having to, you know, after studying and so forth. Um, just tying into that uh, argument of um of decommodification in general.
1: Absolutely. Uh and and it is. It's it's coming down to like, what do we want? What outcomes do we want? And what are our base values? Um as I was saying, we've had all these issues happening, barely, barely covered. Uh and instead we've just been inundated uh with takes about the shit fight uh between Labour and National on any given number of things. Um national is becoming increasingly unhinged. Uh just MP after MP uh in their caucuses is, is mouthing off with just the most ludicrous shit. Labor is having a field day with it, um, and somehow that's bad for democracy. Um because neither of them are focusing on the real issues. Just don't fucking report on it. Like stop reporting on on the the dumb shit. If someone says something that is it shows us something really deep about their values. For example, like not believing in reproductive rights. Absolutely. Like hammer them on that. Don't get pulled into the back and forth about how labor are being unkind to raise that. Like if you're if if you have a problem with Labour doing politics, just don't cover their PR. Just go and nail them on something else. And this is something we've been talking about for five years. You do not have to buy either major party's attack lines on the other party. Both have plenty of shit that you can get them on. Uh, And you don't have to attack Labour on the cost of their policies um, or whether they're being mean, um, et cetera, et cetera. You can look at what they're putting on the table and say, this is actually just not going to work, and here is why. because both labor and national have failed for 30 years to actually deliver effective outcomes. If you think as a, a political analyst or reporter or hobbyist or, or whatever um, you might be that the current state of our politics is in a bad place, what are the alternatives? Tell, tell us, uh, tell us why these things are bad. Uh, And let's try and do some proper MMP uh, as opposed to sticking these two horses side by side and getting them to run around a circuit for eternity because it's not going to work. You just switch people off and we're going to have bad democratic outcomes from that. Like do do your jobs as journalists and reporters and commentators to bring people to the table to tell us what's actually happening, uh, and maybe we can have some discussions that actually make fucking sense. And maybe
2: journalists, it's it's time for journalists to, you know, critique the idea of liberal democracy as a whole. (laughs) Like, what is the point of this? you know, over the last so many years, two decades, sorry, two uh, centuries of having, you know, this settler colonial state, whose interest has the state uh, been serving uh, for the vast majority of this time? Um, These sorts of questions need to be asked about the major parties and also the minor parties um, who are also, you know, uh, following the same mold of not being willing to disturb the interests of the wealthy. Um, What is the you know, the the practice or the ritual of going every three years and voting, what real impact has it had on the lives of the marginalized people in New Zealand, the poor and the working class people, um, you know, disproportionately Maori Pacifica, uh, but also increasingly Pakeha uh, precarity as well becoming the norm in New Zealand. The top 10% of New Zealand owning 60% of the wealth and the bottom 50% owning 2% of the wealth. And I'm really glad that one of the protesters in Otago raised the fact that uh, labor government effectively did you know, one of the most, um, the greatest transfers of wealth to the top um, during its period, uh, through its COVID policies and that, which is, you know, you can find from COVID winners and losers study by Bernard Hickey. So we are seeing a labor government uh, that is sitting and presiding over, um, you know, this disaster and giving more and more wealth to the already wealthy. So we need to start questioning what is the point um, and what are the ways in which we can actually make the democracy work, so-called democracy work, in the interests of uh, the poor and the working class people?
0: This is something where the electorate are out ahead of the the power system, right? Like the support for the major parties at this point is the lowest, almost the lowest it's ever been. Um, because, again, I people are grasping around for alternatives and they're going to pick up the ideas that are on the table um and i think um, unfortunately um if you're you know part of the landed class especially the kind of lower the, the 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 lower steps of of those upper rungs the solutions you're going to be reaching out for are not great for society as a whole which is why the Act Party, the Democracy New Zealand, and, and New Zealand First are, are seeing the successes they are, but it is it's again, um, and I, I really hope we see a competent version of this from the Greens and Te Pāti Māori of highlighting the, the the extent of of these wealth inequalities and putting solutions out there that kind of move us away from the 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 kind of played out ideas that we've been operating with since the nineteen eighties. It's like it's solving the the system we have was built to solve the problems of the 1970s it's not the 1970s anymore what we need i know i know shocking um yeah it's a different tool set
2: yeah
1: and it's just and this is why uh, i do politics media is because i'm just so frustrated by the general conversation around this <laughs> stuff um but as you said rusty the electorate's out ahead your audit your audience if you're a, a content creator or a reporter or a uh, commentator your audience wants this you know you're on the right side of history if you take the major parties to task and if you take the current system to task it's not working and people are fucking feeling it give them what they want you know It, it doesn't have to be a fucking circus which is being fed to you by like what is it a senior caucus member an anonymous senior caucus member it doesn't have to be a pr line that you just shove straight into the headline let's let's nail them let you know let's let's create space for people who have actual solutions that work for humans uh that support our people to to get on the national stage because it's there like we know how to do a lot of this stuff we just need to allow it we're, we're really at that point we're at a a significant tipping point here uh be part of the solution for fuck's sake
0: and fucking be part of making sure that tipping point goes in the right direction i think this is why despite it all fucking sorry for the lib take but electoral outcomes matter like i genuinely believe with this it's not since 2005 we're kind of the the width of possible outcomes is as wide as it has been that what a national act government dealing with the crises we're going to face would look like is fucking scary (laughs) um and yep the other side is going to be cobbled together and inadequate and not wanting to disturb the status quo but it's not at least it's not going to be as actively hostile to human life as the current act body would be. Anyway,
1: any final words, Josephine, before we wrap it up?
2: Yeah, no, no, no more points.
1: <laughs> All right, and hey, that's well been done. another week. That's been another week. Thank I think you so much it
2: for was. <laughs> thank um, you, thank you.
1: We uh one of two hundred, um, bringing you a, a dose of cynical reality um with a a dash of hope uh we'll be continuing through the election season we're trying to get more of those midweek casts uh running as well where we look directly at specific issues uh you might have heard uh middle of the week we had max harris and paul callan talking about a better budget for auckland uh and some of the issues around that uh sometimes these we're the only people doing in-depth reporting on this stuff now uh so we want to we want to do a fair bit more of that. if you are an expert if you are a member of an advocacy organization and you want a platform hit me up um you can come and find me on twitter um hit me up at uh info at one of 200.nz we are happy to do that we can we can work together uh with our uh allies this uh
0: yeah to like
1: media, If you've enjoyed this, give it a share, uh, let it's you know about it, put to share as well. Uh, will have the on on link in the description. Uh, Check out some that I keep Join us on to, uh, to, like, three, um, the front um, to the whatever the fun this campaign has in store for us because
2: it
0: is going to wild Okay, day,
1: everyone, we'll catch if you next feels week. Like
0: we're on the road <laughs> to hell.